So if you do have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 8, the 8th Psalm. I went to a barbecue restaurant for lunch the other day in Madison, and when I walked in, I was behind a couple of other folks, and the guy at the, the cash register seemed like a friendly guy, very professional, very, very kind, very attentive, uh, but I heard him say to the guy in front of me that, uh, he was, that his cash register, the, the, the lady who worked the cash register had called in that day and quit, and another person was a no-show, and so he said, I'm, I'm here all by myself today. He said, it's just me. I'm working the register. I'm working the drive through I'm doing food prep. And so your food may take a, a few minutes. You probably noticed that just about every establishment you go in, there are signs posted somewhere that say, now hiring all positions, all shifts. In fact, it, it, it just blows me away that, that I see this on just about every restaurant. And, and so this, is me, this meant, of course, this, this means that things... Uh, have kind of slowed down in just about every industry. Uh, for example, I, uh, I, was, I had to make a change to a flight I was supposed to be on. This was on Monday and because of the tropical storm Elsa, and I, I got this automated voice uh, mail saying that uh, my flight had been canceled and I need to call in and, and make some changes. And when I called in, what I got on the other line was, due to a shortage of customer service specialists, your expected wait time is four hours and 51 minutes. I thought, who, who's going to wait five hours to talk to someone? So I actually drove to the airport, the Huntsville Airport, and had the matter resolved in just a matter of minutes. Um, but this shortage of staff has put tremendous stress on all who are working. In fact, according to multiple reports, including even one that was released in June, worker burnout is at an all-time high. Worker burnout is at an all-time high. This is a season of exhaustion. Uh, bosses are exhausted, employees are exhausted, moms and dads are worn out. Even people who aren't working seem to be tired. And this exhaustion has fueled feelings of despair, uh, feelings of uh, anxiety, even a sense of depression. As one theologian and social commentator wrote, disappointment and dissatisfaction prevail everywhere. People are tired of life. On the one hand, there is a lack of satisfaction with culture. On the other hand, a sense of discontent and bitter complaint against the state of society. So in the last year, of course, we've undergone a global pandemic uh, with all the things associated with that. And along with that, we had uh, a wildly contentious presidential election. Um, we've had you know, people getting sick, people dying that we love. We've gone through all kinds of things. The financial uh, ramifications of this global pandemic, um, riots and race wars, the uncovering of increased uh, sexual abuse, among other challenges. And what has all of this caused? What's been the consequence of all of this? Well, it has magnified our tendency toward self-protection and self-preservation. What it's done, going through all that we've gone through over the last year plus, is it's made us more self-focused than ever. I think about our greatest concerns, our personal health, our personal safety, our personal rights, our personal fulfillment, 
our personal finances, our family's well-being. This pandemic has simply stoked the flame of our self-centeredness, which paradoxically has only led to greater despair. If we've learned anything from history, at least recent history, look at the Enlightenment of the 18th century and modernity and post-modernity of the 19th and 20th centuries, it's this. The more we turn inward, the more we focus on ourselves, on our own comfort, our own happiness, our own fulfillment, even our own progress, the more miserable we become. We see it not just, of course, in recent history, but even in the history of our own relationships. Who are the people in your life that are the most miserable? It's the people who only talk about themselves. And this, is, this amazes me too. And in fact, I went through a very, at least for the rest of my family, awkward teaching moment at Culver's last, or a few months ago, where, uh, because I, what I'm realizing is it doesn't matter what somebody says to another person, that person often doesn't ask follow-up questions. He simply, he or she has something to one-up that person. So someone could say, you know, look, I, I just got back from being abducted by aliens. And the person would not say a thing about that, but say, you know what, in, in school the other day, here's what happened to me. There's, there's, not a, there's no back and forth. There's not asking questions. We've become nearly pathologically obsessed with ourselves. The pandemic, again, has only magnified our already natural tendency to focus on ourselves, which has intensified our unhappiness. So what is it that we need? What's the solution? Well, we need to think beyond ourselves. What we need is a greater vision of God. What we need is to take our eyes off of ourselves and actually train our focus on who God is and what He is doing in the world. His majesty, His glory, His faithfulness, His sovereign work in the world. As pastor and author John Piper wrote after he retired from 33 years of pastoral ministry, he said, God is still the most important, most valuable, most satisfying, most all-encompassing, and therefore most relevant reality in the world. People are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis to their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. What we need, so what we've been trained to do as a result of our experience over the last 18 months in particular, is self-preserve, to look inward, but what we need to do is look above at the majestic and all-sufficient God. Only this God can satisfy, satisfy us in our current predicament. And this is where the Psalms come in. The Psalms give us stories and songs about how God saves His people, how He delivers and even continues to sustain His own, encouraging and uplifting and empowering and strengthening His people. And even though we, we may think that what we need are better coping strategies and better education and better advice in a different situation and so on, what we really need is a bigger vision of God. And so that's what we're going to hope to accomplish over this, the next, uh, this week and the next five weeks as we look at the Psalms together. Uh, one Psalm per week, and this morning we're going to be in Psalm 8. So um, let me begin by reading verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 8. Here reads the word of the Lord. 
Our Lord, our, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. So the, the superscript or the title to this particular psalm, many of the psalms have the brief titles or superscripts. This one tells us this is a psalm of David written to the choir master. We don't know what prompted it. We don't know the situation and so on. Um, but it begins in verse 1 with a recognition of both the transcendence and the eminence of God. O Lord, our Lord. Verse 1 says, the phrase, O Lord, the first one there is a reference to God as Redeemer King. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's why it's capitalized in many of your, your Bibles. This is a reference to a God who has created everything that exists and is going to redeem or buy back everything that's broken because of sin. He is the all-expansive, the infinite God, the all-consuming God who made and is redeeming everything in the world. The second word translated Lord in our Lord is a different Hebrew word that means governor or ruler. So not only did this God create everything that exists, but he didn't just create and then disappear and say, okay, you're on your own now. He created, but then he sovereignly governs everything by his word, which prompts David to sing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's name represents His character, His attributes, the very essence of His being, we might say. The earth sings, the psalmist says, of the attributes and the character of God. You have set your glory above the heavens, he says. Literally, that reads, thou whose glory is chanted above the heavens. In other words, what he's saying is, and he says this throughout the Psalms, the skies and the galaxies and the heavens are telling the glory of God. The sky above proclaims God's handiwork. The voice of creation goes out throughout all the earth. The voice of creation is heard in every language. In other words, everything in creation tells, it proclaims, it shouts, it announces the glory and majesty of God. That's what David says. So here's our first point this morning from the text. Creation is, is a speech from God to humanity declaring, I am here, I am with you, and I am in control. See, unlike all the other gods of the earth, the so-called gods and the idols of the, the earth who cannot speak, and this is by the way, this, is what, this was God's primary indictment of the idols of the, of the other nations. They can't talk. They can't speak because they don't exist. Unlike all the other so-called gods of the world, the earth, our God speaks. We read that the accounts in the Scriptures before the completion of the canon uh, where God actually verbally speaks to His people, encouraging them, comforting them, terrifying them, guiding them along. He speaks to us in His Word. He speaks to us through his son. And the psalmist says, even creation is yelling, is shouting of the glory of God. 
the majesty, the beauty, the transcendence of God. Even the heavens cannot contain His glory. He's bigger than the heavens. Now this is staggering when we consider how big the heavens are. With the Hubble telescope making its maiden voyage in 1990, we continue to learn more and more stuff about our universe, and frankly, it's pretty mind-boggling. Think about this, as one person has pointed out, if our galaxy, the Milky Way, if our galaxy was, were the size of North America, then our entire solar system would be the size of a coffee cup. So think about how small a coffee cup is when compared to the whole, all of North America. And the Earth, which is part of our solar system, would be barely visible, just a speck in the coffee cup. That's how big our galaxy is, and we know that the Milky Way is actually one of 200 to 300 billion galaxies. We're still finding out more and more just how expansive the universe is, and God is bigger than the universe. It's kind of hard to to get our minds around, isn't it? For those of you who are older than 30, you may remember a little day, in fact, it's still on, a daytime show called The Price is Right. Right? Of course, you remember this. If you, and, and probably, if you're younger than 30, you probably know what I'm talking about here. But I know for some who are under 30, if it's not on Netflix, they, they've never heard of it. Um, well, there's a game on The Price is Right called Cliffhangers. Anybody remember this? Let me show you a picture just so you know what I'm talking about. And what it is is contestants then will, what they do is they, they bid on three random items trying to identify the exact price of, that, of those items. And the items can be random. They may be like a dog grooming kit or uh, something like a miniature pinball machine. So they're typically sort of, you know, they're odd items that you don't think of every day. And for every dollar that the contestant is away from the actual price, so if the contestant bids $28 and it's actually $21, for every difference that this hiker... This mountain climber takes one step up the mountain while the music plays, right? And so he goes up that that mountain, and the contestant has three guesses, and if the contestant can't get it within $25, all three, then what happens to the mountain climber? He just goes over the edge, right, into the abyss. Well, this is kind of the way that our minds work, frankly, when it comes to trying to grasp the grandeur of God. Our minds will only take us so far, and then we just kind of plummet over the edge. We can't get any farther. When it comes to the vastness of God, the majesty of God, a God who's actually bigger than all the heavens, all the billions of galaxies, there's only so far we can go in our minds. So the Bible helps us by giving us figurative language. In verse 3 here, David refers to the heavens as the work of God's fingers. This is so beautiful. David is pointing out that in contrast to God, the heavens are so tiny that it's as if God... You ever seen anybody work on a miniature, like a model airplane or train or something? The, the, The heavens are so tiny when compared to God, it's as if God with His fingertips have designed them. Figurative language to help us just get a category for the the vastness of God. But again, God is not just glorious in His splendor, majestic in His holiness and beauty. He is actually also personal. He is with us. 
He is near. He's not just, it's not just, O Lord, but our Lord. He's the one who works in every detail of our lives and knows and actually cares about every hurt, every disappointment, every painful experience that you go through, maybe you've gone through recently, every crisis, every moment of uncertainty. Even in those, this governor and sovereign ruler is working to redeem what is broken. I heard a pastor share a story one time of standing in the front row of the auditorium. He was only minutes away from preaching, and one of the deacons came up and kind of whispered in his ear. He said, hey, there's a family in the back, and they're just sobbing. I mean, they're crying very, very loudly. What should we do? Well, that family had just found out the night before that their daughter had been sexually molested by a close relative. They spent all night with the police. They were up all night, and rather than sleep in the morning, they wanted to be with God's people in worship. And this pastor who was preaching a sermon series uh, through the Psalms immediately thought, well, I've got to change what I'm, what I'm going to talk about here. I've got to talk about something more practical. I've got to talk about uh, practical ways to deal with injustice or, or practical advice on how to handle difficulty. But he didn't make any changes. Instead, he, he preached the sermon that he had prepared and, and prayed over that previous week on the majesty and the glory and the sovereignty and the goodness of God. He said, in retrospect, I gave not one word of application to our people. Two weeks later, the husband and father of the girl who had been molested came up to that pastor and said, I want you to know these, two, these past two weeks have been the hardest two weeks of my life. The most grueling, the most painful weeks of my entire life. But he said, do you know what got me through this, these last two weeks? The vision of the greatness and the sovereignty of God that you gave us from the Psalms two weeks ago. That has been the rock that we've stood on. Now, that's not to minimize. I don't say that to minimize the importance of application. Of course, a good sermon should have calls to respond, and there should be ways that in that sermon applies to our lives. But there will be nothing that can ever meet our needs, so to speak, more than to rightly understand the majesty and the beauty and the power and the holiness and the sovereignty of the living God of the universe and the way that this awesome God cherishes and delights in and treasures His people. So upon considering the majesty of God and this, this, this idea that I can't even really get my mind around or near how big God is, David says, well, what is man that you would be mindful of him? This is not some sort of existential crisis he's experiencing. He's saying, God, in light of how big you are and how majestic you are, why would you even care about man? You're so big that the universe is putty in your all-powerful fingers. Why would you care anything about mankind? And I think it's a reasonable question we consider the expansiveness of the universe. Have you ever thought, yeah, I believe in God and I know He exists and, I, and when I see creation, I'm reminded of who God is, but still I really have a hard time thinking that He actually knows or cares about me personally among the billions of people in the world. Have you ever felt like you're, you're all alone in this? That God is maybe, He's there, but He's some distant reality. But look at David's conclusion, verses 5 and following. He says, 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And then he concludes in verse 9 again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now this is very glowing language about mankind. It's about humanity. Where do we recognize this from? Well, it's from Genesis 1 and 2. It's a summary of the creation account. David says, you have crowned him with glory and honor, speaking of humanity, and given him dominion over the works of your hands. This is a reference to what God tells us in Genesis 1 and 2, how God creates man in his own image, and he, he gives man dominion over all of his creation. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden immediately after he made them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and what? And subdue it. That's called the, the cultural mandate. Extends to all human beings, all image bearers of God. This is God saying to us, I want you to take everything I've made and I want you to fill it out to all of its geographical, architectural, cultural, and aesthetic possibilities. Completely fill out everything I've made. This is God saying to us, make new music. Write new screenplays. Build new buildings. Landscape new gardens. Discover new cures to diseases. Produce new films. Choreograph new dances. This is why, by the way, that Movie, art, movies, music, dances, those things don't have to be, quote, Christian in order to glorify God. The output of our imagination as those who have been created by God in His image, the output of our imagination glorifies God and reflects God's own imagination. Now, of course, there are songs and movies and art and dances and so on that are dishonoring to God, but we don't have to Christianize things in order for them to be glorifying to God. I, I grew up in a tradition, at least for a while, that said uh, that you could only listen to Christian music if you wanted to please God. And you could only watch Christian movies if you wanted to please God. You could only eat Christian candy, believe it or not, among the radicals uh, there, which you can only find at the Christian bookstore. They were called testaments. It's terrible, I know. It's, this is a true story. But you, you don't have to Christianize things you don't have to eat Christian candy, right? I'm assuming that Snickers, Twix, those things aren't Christian. You can eat that stuff and, and make, make uh, new dances and write new literature and create new prose and all that stuff and still glorify God because when men and women and children use their imaginations to create and compose and to choreograph, design and landscape as image bearers of God, they are reflecting their creator who incredibly has commanded us via the cultural mandate to fill out everything that I've made. So here's the, the incredible reality, our second point. Our majestic God treasures us so much that he's entrusted to us his creation, of course, under his sovereign rule. Now, that's a lot of confidence that God has placed in us, isn't it? Even though we're nothing compared to God, a microscopic speck against the backdrop of the universe, God has said to us, I'm giving you this world to manage. 
And to think that God has that level of confidence in us should inspire us, really. God thinks so highly of you that he gave you, he invested in you his glory and honor, and he has not only made you in his image, but given you this earth to steward, which of course should never lead us to think, wow, I must be pretty amazing. I must be pretty awesome. Must be pretty impressive. I don't even need God. No. Instead, it causes us to think, God, why would you be so kind to us? Why would you be so generous to us? Why would you entrust your creation to us? These are David's thoughts, by the way, as he composes this spirit-inspired song. One Old Testament scholar, uh, Arnold Anderson, writes, Comparatively, man is of little account, and yet God has bestowed upon him kingship over the whole earth. This, too, is a glorification of Yahweh, for the greater man's status is, the more awestruck should be his attitude to God, who is the source of man's glory. Have you ever had that thought that, I just, I just can't do this? I, I can't lead this project. I can't manage my family. I can't parent these children. I can't do this. I, I'm not good at anything. Well, remember this, God thinks so highly of you that he's entrusted his world to you. As human beings, we are the kings and queens of God's creation. We've been given dominion over the earth. Now, of course, we need his constant grace at every moment, but that responsibility is indisputable evidence that God treasures you and has uniquely gifted you to do his will. When I was a new pastor at a church outside of Chicago, one of my responsibilities that I was given was to plan a series of concerts during the summer, we call the, the summer concert series, and we would bring in one Sunday evening a month, um, a, it wasn't kind of an A-list uh, celebrity, but kind of a B-list, uh, that's all I could get, a B-list celebrity to come in and do uh, a concert. And so we had some, you know, some pretty big names who would come in, and they'd, we'd spend an evening with them, and one of the, con- one of the, the concerts was put on by, done by a lady by the name of Jill Phillips. You ever heard of her? She, she's a Christian artist, a terrific Christian artist, lives in Nashville. In fact, made her whole living doing this. So this is what she does for a living. She's a, she's a professional Christian music artist. Well, she came and had this beautiful set and it just had some great songs. But one of her songs, one of her best songs, best known songs was called God Believes in You. God Believes in You. And when I first heard that, you know, I'd only been out of seminary a year and a half, two years. I was really, I don't know, for something, for some reason that really just sort of, I don't know, it, it irked me a little bit. I, I wasn't comfortable with that sort of language. God believes in you. But actually, there's a beautiful truth to that. You're not just some mass of cells that mysteriously came into existence. You have been personally designed by the world's creator, and he believes in you so much that he made you a steward of his earth. Now, that only goes so far in terms of being encouraging, because when we look at the earth, the world that we've been given to steward, we see that we've kind of made a mess of it. I mean, things are really bad. Over, all over this planet, people are starving, bleeding, suffering, dying because of a shortage of resources, political tension, violence, hatred. Clearly, things are not the way they should be. And not only have we not governed the world particularly well, 
We've fallen infinitely short of what God has demanded that we do. The very reason that He created us to glorify, enjoy Him, and to perfectly obey Him as our King and Father. We've not done that. We've not perfectly obeyed Him, not even close. We've not glorified Him and enjoyed Him the way He's commanded us. The Scriptures teach that since Adam and Eve fell, not only did we lose control of the earth... But we're born alienated from God. We're born with a sin problem. You know, people are not born inherently good. As the talk show hosts may tell you, we are born actually broken. Sinful by nature. We want to be our own. Theologians refer to this as total depravity. It doesn't mean that every person is as bad as he or she could be. But that in every single action, thought, motive, deed, initiative, everything we do is stained by sin. And so we look at this world and we say, God, you've you've given us this incredible world to be a steward of, to manage your creation. We have absolutely made a meal of it. So does this mean that God now has abandoned us? Has he turned his back on us? Has he left us to our own devices? The answer is in this psalm. You've heard me say before that Every psalm points either directly or indirectly to Jesus. Some psalms point directly to Jesus. They're called messianic psalms. And we know this because even the New Testament writers refer back, they'll, they'll quote that part of, a part of that psalm, and they'll say, actually, this is about Jesus. But other psalms are indirectly about Jesus. They find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And Psalm 8 is one of those. The writer of Hebrews, in this beautiful book in the New Testament, which is actually more of a sermon than a, than a book, he says this in Hebrews 2, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Sound familiar? You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything under, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, though, he goes on, we do not see everything in subjection unto him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, we read that, and what do you think immediately? That's Psalm 8. That's the same uh, verbiage that you just read a few minutes ago. Notice the phrase, crowned with glory and honor. First, it's used to describe humanity. Made in God's image, endowed with God's glory, image, and honor, entrusted with God's creation. But then it's used a verse later to describe Jesus. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. On one level, Psalm 8 is about mankind. It's about mankind, those who are stamped with the image of God, those who are treasured by the Creator, those who bear His image. But on another level, it finds its ultimate meaning in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Man was crowned with glory and honor as the only objects of God's creation, again, made in His image. But man failed ultimately to, to glorify and enjoy God and to obey Him. Jesus, being fully human, realized God's expectation of humanity by virtue of His perfect obedience, and as such has been crowned with all glory and honor, and given a name by which every knee 
and, and will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all. Now, let me show you something really cool here as we wrap up. I was telling one of our elders about this the other day. You know, you're studying and, and sometimes it's just so amazing and beautiful what God reveals. Look at verse 4 again. This is David in, in Psalm 8 who says, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, that phrase care for is uh, the Hebrew word pakav, which means to visit or to attend to. If you, in fact, if you have a King James Bible, which I know at least one person in our church uses, um, if you have a King James Bible, it says this, what is man that you would visit him, that you would visit him? Well, remember the story of Zechariah in Luke 1. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, and he is told that he's going to be the father, of course, of John the Baptist, the one who would pave the way for Jesus and, and the one who would usher in this new messianic age, the Messiah for all times. And what does Zechariah says? He says in, in Luke 1, 68 and 69, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 8, David is pointing to the incarnation of Jesus. You say, what does all that mean? Well, do you know how you can be sure that this incredible, majestic, transcendent, glorious God of the universe cares about us? Certainly because He has spoken to us in creation. Certainly because He has given us His Word. And because He has entrusted the earth to us. But even more than that, He has visited us in our affliction, in the person of Jesus Christ. He became one of us to save us from our sin, to bring us back to Himself. Here's our final point this morning. The ultimate display of God's concern for us is His visit to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' active obedience, that is to say, obeying all the commands of God, and His passive obedience, what the writer of Hebrews would call His tasting of death, Jesus makes it possible to have something we can never gain on our own, forgiveness from God. Jesus makes it possible for us to have something we can never attain to by our own striving, a relationship with the Creator King, with the Redeemer, with the One who made the world and everything in it. We can directly go to this God through Jesus Christ. Even though there are nearly 8 billion people in the world, when we speak to God, incredibly, unfathomably, He hears us. He delights in us. And He loves to answer us according to His mercy and His power. Now, of course, knowing that we can go directly to God doesn't solve all of our problems. The world is still messed up. We know this, we know our lives are messed up, um, which we might as well admit. After all, the gospel is only good news if we understand and admit to the bad news. Yes, there's joy in this life, and there's beauty, but there's also sadness, pain, loss, and death. We don't want to fight with each other, but we do. No one wants to become an alcoholic or a junkie. No one wants his marriage to end in divorce, but these things happen. 
We are unable to fix ourselves, our family, or our world. We were created to rule the world, but it seems like instead the, ru- the world is ruling us, tossing us all around. And the more we turn inward looking for solutions, the more we look inward at our own strength, our own ability, our own ingenuity, the more in our face our emptiness and hopelessness and helplessness become. But what this psalm teaches us is that this majestic God, beyond human comprehension, has descended into the depths of our failure in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, God Himself took on the consequences of our rebellion, our our arrogance, our foolishness, our stupidity, our selfishness, and ultimately our rejection of Him. Jesus alone reveals that God, even though He is majestic, Majestic is his, his name is Majestic, but he's not a distant, impersonal being. He's not an angry judge, but a loving father gathering his hurting children to himself so that he might heal them, forgive them, redeem them, and offer them this promise of a hopeful future where we will, where we will dine and dance, and feast, and do all the glorious things for which we were created, only in a sinless environment with our Creator God, where nothing will ever distort, or destroy, or take us from there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, encourage us this morning with your word. Minister to us by your Spirit, and help us, God, even now, As we look and we see the skies and the clouds and the heavens and the mountains and the glory of your creation, to recognize your glory and your holiness and your splendor and your awesome power, but also, God, help us to grasp and to understand and to revel in the fact that you, God, can be known through Jesus You, God, are welcoming us into a relationship with you in Jesus Christ where we will spend eternity with you doing the things you made us to do and worshiping you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.